0: And joining us today is Kat Gordon. Kat Gordon is the author of Life in the Cosm, Stealth Lovers, and Numerous Short Stories. She's also the founder of the Spoonie Authors Network and co-editor of Nothing Without Us, an anthology by disabled people for disabled people. Oh, and she really loves cake. Hello, Kat. Hello there. (laughs) Thank
1: you for having me. It is
0: wonderful to have you. I'm very excited for our chat today. Unfortunately, because we are communicating virtually, there will be no cake. Um,
1: (laughs) Well, okay. I guess I'll stay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There will, however, be lovely conversations. And since this is the Spoonie Authors podcast, I thought it most appropriate to talk about the Spoonie Authors Network. So can you tell us a little bit about what the Spoonie Authors Network is and how it came to be.
1: Well, simply put, the Spoonie Authors Network is a multi-contributor blog of all kinds of people who identify under that umbrella term Spoonie. So we have people who are neurodiverse, people who manage chronic pain, people who uh, manage other kinds of physical disabilities, people who are hard of hearing. Um, I really don't like to be a gatekeeper. I'm very welcoming under that term Spoonie. It's often a term reserved for people with low energy levels, but that could apply to so many different things whether mental health whether autistic burnout or managing chronic pain or different kind of disabilities so we have a lot of people on there
0: uh because this is going to this is going to be the first episode uh just so you know can you take a moment to actually explain what spoon theory is for folks because this is a new podcast
1: and okay Yeah, uh, now I always have to say this slowly because I'm bad at remembering names. Uh, Christine Miserandino uh, created a, uh, a a thing called Spoon Theory to try to explain to her friends who were abled what it's like to deal with low energy levels. So she basically used spoons as a measurement tool one spoon allocated per task in a day. And we're talking ordinary tasks. It might take me two spoons to take a shower and dry my hair. It could take a spoon to get out of bed, a spoon to even brush your teeth. People who manage different kinds of pain levels, for example, these are exhausting things. So when she wrote spoon theory to explain this to her friends, a lot of disabled people or people who manage chronic illness identified with it, and then the term spoony derived from that.
0: That is an excellent explanation. Thank you. And so
1: tell us, continue telling us about this blog. Okay, so I published Life in the Cosm in 2016 and went to my first writers' conference. Back then I was hashtag disabled and alone. So I wasn't part of disabled culture back then. But when I went to my writers the, the writers' conference, I noticed so many people using different kinds of mobility aids. And I thought, wow, these are only the disabilities and conditions that I can perceive. There must be a lot of people here with invisible illness and disabilities. And would it be cool if we can all talk to each other? Because there seems to be a lot of us out here who are authors. So I purchased a domain and I put the in in that so that was in November of 2016 I thought I would just create this thing hoped it wasn't going to be just me and one friend and it turned out that a lot of people enthusiastically volunteered their time to share their different stories and they loved doing it so I was really excited about that I think we have 20 plus contributors now
0: That's amazing. And so what kinds of content do people tend to share on the Spoonie Authors Network?
1: All kinds of things. (laughs) Uh, We have a series about disability tropes that Derek Newman still wrote, um, just wanting to show how poorly disabled characters are written in fiction and some of the pitfalls and harmful tropes you can fall into. Uh, we have people talking about, uh, our, one of our latest uh, posts is uh, author Jameson Wolfe talking about how his cats are muses. And I'm like, yes. Actually, I, had to, I did ask him if he would do that because I had noticed that his cats played a huge role in managing his disability, but also inspiring his writing. So why not? We have a lot of things we have of frustrations with kind of things that go on in the writer's world or how people just cope with their disability and keep on creating. Um, So yeah, totally check it out because I find as the editor, I learn from other people. So I kind of selfishly love this.
0: So what has been the most exciting part of building the Spoonie Authors Network? Has it been the community, the things you've learned?
1: It definitely the community, for sure. Absolutely the things I've learned. But I think the most exciting thing was it was inspiration for the Nothing Without a anthology. And, um, you know, getting finding out that there are so many different writers out there creating content. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to have an anthology with just disabled, chronically ill, uh, neurodiverse people writing their stories, wouldn't that be neat? Um, So it went from that to actually happening because Renaissance is the best publisher in the whole universe. Um, So I I think having an actual tangible anthology with um, great uh, disability representation uh, is pretty, uh, that's pretty darned exciting.
0: It is, it is a very exciting book and i really enjoyed attending the launch for nothing without us in toronto it was a fantastic event yay Uh, did you want to talk a bit more about working on that anthology and sort of the process for that yeah
1: so um it was one of those things where as i said it was an idea in my head And then I was sitting at the Renaissance vendor booth with Nathan Frechette, the publishing director of Renaissance. And I said, you know, I'd really like to put an anthology together where it's disabled creatives, but I don't exactly know the process. And I didn't realize that was my pitch. (laughs) (laughs) I accidentally pitched a book uh, because Nathan said Renaissance will do it. And as it was getting closer to creating the formal pitch, I realized I can't do this all by myself because I've never been an editor in chief of an anthology and oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? And so Nathan said, well, why don't you get Talia? This is Talia C. Johnson um, uh, to co-edit it with me. And Talia happens to be my best friend. And if anybody knows Talia and myself, we are likened to Pinky and the Brain. So my first reaction was, what could possibly go wrong? But everything went right. Talia and I just clicked and uh, we put together the call for submissions. And it was really interesting because she's in Toronto and I'm in Ottawa. So we had to rely on technology as our (laughs) accessible way of communicating. We would even write um, the calls to submission or our to-do lists at the same time using different software. So that was awesome. And then the stories rolled in and we were pretty much on the same page for a lot of them. There were some not written by disabled people and those were a little bit more obvious. (laughs) Sometimes Tally and I had to say what we thought our rejection letter should be to get that out of our system. And then we wrote the professional (laughs) rejection letter. Um, but, yeah, it uh, it it did all come together uh, really gorgeously. One of the things uh, Talia and I didn't want to do is we didn't want to put our own work in there. We wanted to have space for uh, other people. And it was good because then we could just concentrate on being the co-editors. And we ended up with 22 stories that we're super proud of. Um, And one last thing I have to say, because this is the best news for me. I always wanted to have this anthology taught, and it's currently part of a curriculum in Trent University in a Canadian Disability Studies course, so that's, like, super amazing. Go (laughs) us!
0: Yeah, that's really awesome. And it's amazing how the internet has given us these opportunities, not just to work with people who are, you know, really far away, but... I have actually had the opportunity to interview authors for this podcast who are homebound Mm. because we can use things like Skype to communicate and that's such an amazing thing. Technology is so amazing for disabled people and as a fantasy writer, a lot of what I've been learning uh, as I've been thinking about disability in my own world is just how terrible being a disabled human has been throughout a lot of our history. Exactly.
1: And guess what? It's 2020 and it's still a little bit terrible at times. Yeah, but it really depends
0: on where you are in 2020 as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I better quantify that. I actually really don't have a problem with being disabled. You know, managing my disability, I'm okay with that it's the 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 thing that's annoying is inaccessibility and lack of accommodation and and ableism um i think if you know we lived in a a world where it was just so commonplace to consider accessibility and accommodation most of us i reckon would just just go and do our lives and that's it So, yeah, so it's not really... I don't personally find it so terrible being disabled, but that's my own voice perspective on it.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think it really depends. Everyone has a different relationship with their disability. And what really has been horrible throughout most of history, to to clarify, is, you know, there's a lot of stigma now, but, wow, it was so much worse throughout all of history, pretty much. And, you know, still, like, we're talking from a Canadian perspective, it's still terrible, honestly, you know, as close to us as the United States for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And if you're talking about history, well, then we could talk about language very briefly, right? I mean, a lot of the words um, that... uh, I kind of, well, I do make sensitivity changes to when I'm editing stuff now, are words that were based on mocking people with intellectual disabilities, uh, mental illness and such. And they're so ingrained in our, our language. And I think it's interesting how far back those words go as well to make us less than other people.
0: Absolutely. I had the joy of doing a talk about exactly that at a feminist conference last year. Um, I was specifically dissecting the word crazy. And yes. today, one of my favorite YouTubers, uh, Jessica Kelgren fozard just released a video um, about the word dumb and the history of the word dumb and how, you know, language has been shaped to, you know, belittle disabled people and how a lot of those words have passed on into everyday usage. Mm
1: -hmm. And I was
0: like, I've sort of been secretly working on a side project about that for a while on and off because I'm not really sure what shape I want it to be because there's so much. And so I was so thrilled to see her making a video about that because she is like half a million followers. So like having something out there with that kind of reach is a huge step forward. Um, And I'm really glad that these conversations do seem to be happening more.
1: Yes, exactly. And uh, I mean, when I wrote my first book, again, I wasn't part of disabled culture, so I just used the language that we've all been entrenched with. You know, I'd say things like "That's crazy awesome," right? It's it's it was a commonplace expression back then. And and um, with my first book, I'm going to be coming out with a second edition where I actually toned down a lot of those phrases. I know some authors just will say, well, that's the way it was then, I've changed now, but it kind of bugs me a little bit. So I was really lucky that Nathan from Renaissance is is willing to uh, release a uh, second edition where I, where I just kind of filter out a lot of those or replace a lot of those words. And being an absurdist humorist is great because if you don't have those words, you got to make up something else. And I found they, they underscored the ridiculousness of some of my characters even better. So
0: <laughs> Perfect. Speaking of your characters, so um, you have written a variety of characters with a variety of disabilities in your own work. What have you learned about disability and about accessibility by writing these characters?
1: So that's a really good question. I'm going to talk about something that's not published yet. It's the latest work in progress. I nickname it my disabled Star Trek. Um, It's a work called Iris and the Crew, Tear Space, A New One. And it comes from a short story I had written that a friend of mine insisted must be a novel. (laughs) And I'm turning it into a, a series of 11 episodes. So my chapters are like episodes. And in Iris and the Crew to how we would perceive them, all have some kind of disability or neurodiversity and such. But in their world, everything is so accessible and accommodating that they don't actually know what the word disabled means as applied to a living being. They only think equipment could be enabled or disabled. So they have no idea. And when someone accident, a janitor, in the first episode, it's called the intergalactic janitor, gets accidentally zapped onto their ship from NASA while cleaning equipment, um, he says, you're all disabled. And they don't know what that means. And they're trying to figure out what it means. Do, do they think? Does he think we're dead? So we're no longer like actively able? In the, and then they try smiling at him, which makes him nervous. And then he gets sucked back into his time by NASA. And the end of that episode is kind of like, so... Did we get it right? Like, what is a disabled person? And and then Iris says, I don't know, I guess we'll never know now. And um, so I guess I I just fantasize about a world where everything is so accommodating. So if, you know, um, what I hope to learn uh, through Iris and the crew as I'm representing different conditions and disabilities is how their lives would be in a completely accommodating world. These are all senior officers on a ship. You know, they're all the heroes in the story. They're not pathetic. They're they just are. So I'm hoping, um, also with, imp- um, with input from uh, sensitivity readers too, that I'll have things nuanced for proper representation. I'll be able to tell you a year from now or two how much I've learned <laughs> about it. But I think this is a good exercise for me to just get really empathic.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's really interesting to design a world for that's specifically designed to be accommodating to people with so many different kinds of uh, disabilities, because a lot of people, when they hear the term accessibility, they think ramps and elevators, and they don't think any further. Right. But I'm sure there are a lot of other aspects that you've had to consider. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, so while I was busy worrying about every other autistic human in the world and how they need (laughs) quiet spaces, I didn't realize that I myself am autistic. (laughs) (laughs) I found out the hard way when I had auditory sensory overload and said, I must flee to a quiet space and then went, wait, I need a quiet space. (laughs) Yes, so there's oh my gosh, there's so many different kinds of accommodation. There's we don't think about chemical sensitivity, you know. There's scent sensitivity, chemical sensitivity. We have to consider, you know, um, those kinds of things. One one thing I feel isn't considered enough uh, is uh, hard of hearing slash deaf accommodation. I, I I I I am hard of hearing myself. I would have. I would appreciate mics at conferences, um, but I'm sure if I, uh, if I couldn't hear at all, I would feel completely excluded. There's not a lot of interpretation, um, whether it's visual or done by someone who knows sign. Um, so I think about that kind of accommodation a lot. Yes, of course, ramps and such, but even for neurodiverse people, noise is a huge factor and while you don't want to tell everybody at a con to be quiet and not happy to see each other it's great to have a space that's completely away from the event that is just dead quiet i've i've gone into such a space it makes me feel like everything just kind of dials down and i can breathe and i can think and then i'm like okay now i'm ready to go to the next thing Um, those are just a few of the accommodations that I can think of, but it's vast. Like if you're going to be an accessibility person for an event, like you've got a lot of work to do. Um, I would say be gentle on yourself because accessibility is a huge thing. Um, and listen, just listen when people bring up issues that they're having and, and thank them and, and, and try to go forward with putting forth the accommodation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Listen and understand that what you have seen is a really limited view of what actually exists in terms of disability and disabled people's needs. Um, Something really cool, uh, I also follow a blind YouTuber, Molly Burke, and she just did a video of taking her guide dog on a cruise ship, and it was this ridiculously fancy brand new cruise ship And they actually had braille that would tell you what floor you were on, on the underside of the handrails on the stairs. And I thought that was the cleverest
1: thing. That's brilliant. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that I think that writers should really consider more when building worlds. Those little bits of accessibility that allow disabled characters to function in your world even if you don't actually have any major disabled characters in your stories just like having a world that is clearly built with accessibility in mind uh, implies that they are there implies that they have always been there and have actually been considered
1: exactly and uh, you know, there are people who do disability advocacy in, in different kinds of activist type ways. My, I think my way is literis, uh, li- the, the literal, wor- literal world, literary world. There we go. We're going to fix that in post, people. Um, but yes, I feel that uh, fiction in particular is such an influencer. So, if in all different works of fiction we do exactly as you say, just just have it there, um, it it influences people that hey, how come this isn't here in 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 my reality right now? We should we should kind of do the thing. So, fiction can be very powerful.
0: Absolutely. Um, speaking of fiction, one of the biggest problems that exist right now is the limited representation of disability in the mainstream media. Can you touch a bit on what that looks like, what representation you have seen, and how you would like to see that rep- t- uh, that representation change We're good at words. We're writers.
1: We promise. We are good at words. And we're really smart, too. We promise. (laughs) Um, It's funny. The first thing that I thought of when you said media was all these, um, my mind went to social media and all these inspiration porn videos. You know, um, the types that I actually hate are like um, when you see able bodied people picking somebody who's sitting in their wheelchair out of like a dirt path because the pavement has run out, you know? And so it's like clap, clap, clap for the able people who rescued the disabled person or whatnot. And I'm like, why did the pavement run out? Like that's that's what's on my mind, right? It's like, what's that about? Or if you see um, a, a disabled person doing something really awesome with their fitness and they can do it, why can't you? So that kind of representation doesn't really help anyone. And it's not telling the story. I would love to see more of those nonfiction media stories told by the perspective of the disabled person. It would be really, really different from what it's like when, you know, abled reporters and such do it. Um, But... In terms of fiction representation, I have to say, every time a Good Doctor episode, like a commercial, comes on, I start screaming at the television. Um, I don't feel comfortable with that representation of autism at all. Uh, I think it does lead to expectations that there's only one way to be autistic. uh, can, can I
0: pause you for a minute there? I uh, watch Netflix and only Netflix, so I have literally no idea what you're talking about. Can you uh, describe a little bit of, of what The Good Doctor is and what this problematic representation is?
1: Right. OK, well, uh, again, I, I I can't bear to watch an episode <laughs> So the, the, the clips that I have seen, uh, the good doctor is a young man who's, um, I guess, brilliant at being a doctor uh, who's autistic. And every time I see a commercial clip of it, he, he talks in a kind of a, a, a stilted way and says things like, I can experience empathy. And, and it's like, well, uh, I'm like, well, yeah, of course we can. You know, in fact, many autistic people are hyper uh, empathetic. Uh, I've been compared to a Betazoid from Star Trek. So, um, you know, and it, it, there's this notion of kind of m- the what I call the Rain Man representation. You know, often, often a man, often a savant um, talks talks in a way that uh, might be a little unique. Uh, and while there might be autistic folk like that, great, but there's such a, like, it's, a, it's a, such a vast spectrum of what it's like to be autistic. And, and so those kind of cliches come up and they lead to things like, I, I can't remember her name, but there was an author who's autistic, whose work was rejected because it didn't reflect what they thought an autistic person should be like the good doctor or like atypical or whatnot. So that's, that's not good. You know, if, <laughs> if an autistic creative is representing themselves on the page and you say they're not autistic enough, that's that, no, that's the total opposite of good. That should not happen. So those are my feelings about different kinds of representation, fiction and nonfiction. Uh, Is there
0: anything that you would really, really like to see more of um, story-wise, like in terms of the types of stories you would like to see being told?
1: Well, in the Nothing Without Us anthology, we have a slogan, Um, we are the heroes, not the sidekicks. I would just, I don't even care what kind of genre it is, I want to see uh, people in the neurodiverse, uh, mentally ill, uh, disabled spectrums and such, write their stories, you know, and if they're written for the screen, I want to see characters, uh, actors portray those characters who represent, uh, you know, it's, I know that as an actor, you can have a, a full range of um, of how you do your craft. But boy, it would be so great that if an autistic character was portrayed by an autistic actor, you know, or a mobility, a disabled person was portrayed by an actor who manages mobility. uh. So I'd like to just see more, more, more of actual own voice stuff, because there's not enough out there. And for me, when I read Nothing Without Us, it gave me a small insight into the stories that want to be told. So, yeah, more, just more, any genre. <laughs> and are there any
0: own voices works other than Nothing Without Us that you want to give a shout out to?
1: I, my very first introduction was uh, Journey of a Thousand Steps by Madonna Scaff. I think um, for that title, it's Madonna Scaff Corin. It is a Renaissance book. Uh, I thought the um, th- like the protagonist is someone who manages MS, just like the author. I found it a riveting story, and the way this uh, character st- solves the mystery, solves the crime. And has to remember things like, oh, no, I I left my rollator in the taxi cab again. I got to stop losing walkers that way. You know, and it was just like, it was so great. I'm like, yes, if you first have a mobility device, you're going to forget it in a taxi. (laughs) That's going to happen. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, Journey of a Thousand Steps was the only book I had known. And I think that's another reason what inspired me for wanting to do the anthology. I thought, People are asking me, do you know works? And I'm like, I know one. That wasn't good either. Uh, Another shout out though, I would also like to put forward uh, is um, for Jameson Wolfe's Little Yellow Magnet. That is his memoir of what his life was like when he literally woke up the next day and his body didn't move the way it did the day before, which eventually led to a diagnosis of MS. Um, what I like about it is it shows internalized and externalized ableism as well. He's very, very honest in that. Um, so you can find a uh, little yellow magnet where to buy it on jamesonwolf.com.
0: Awesome. Those both sound like great stories. And hopefully next time we chat, you'll have way more to recommend because I have a lot of amazing authors coming up on this podcast. Woohoo! <laughs> Yay so i think it is about time to wrap things up uh where can people go to find out more about you and your
1: work so the easiest way to get all the catness is to go to catgordon.com now that's cat c-a-i-t gordon g-o-r-d-o-n dot com and i have a a regular blog i do there um all my books and and works in uh, process, our progress are written there. And, and from there, you can find out how to find me on social media and such as well.
0: Awesome. And of course, for anyone who wants to check out the Spoonie Authors Network, that is at spoonieauthorsnetwork.blog, I believe? Yes, it's yeah. at dot
1: .blog and dot .com. Awesome.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Spoonie Authors Podcast. The Spoonie Authors Podcast is part of the Spoonie Authors Network, a community initiative devoted to sharing the stories of disabled authors and educating abled people about what life is like for disabled creatives. Transcripts of this podcast are also available on the Spoonie Authors Network. To learn more or become a contributor, visit SpoonieAuthorsNetwork.blog. And of course, if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast streaming platform.